Hello, everybody. This is Alex Barthet with the Lean Zone podcast. Today, we're going to talk about insurance traps in construction contracts, the things that you need to be most careful with. And with us today, we have two experts from both sides of the aisle here, Marcus with Douglas Orr Plumbing and Magda with Brown and Brown. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourselves, Marcus and Magda. Sure. Good morning, Alex. Appreciate being on uh, the podcast with you and, and Magda this morning. My name is Marcus Spiegelberg. I'm with Douglas Orr Plumbing. We're a plumbing contractor here in South Florida. All we do is plumbing. Um, we've been around for 45 years. I personally have been in South Florida for 15 and in construction for about 20. Um, my role in the company is to do all the business side of it, the legal side of it, the contracts. So this is something that's definitely down my alley. Thanks, Marcus. Hey, Magda, how are you? Great, great. Thank you, Alex, for having me on the podcast this morning. Uh, my name is Magda Vashkevich. I'm with Brown & Brown Insurance. Um, Brown & Brown is a full-service insurance agency, you know, founded in 1939, so we've been around for, for a while. Uh, we're the largest agency in Florida, fifth largest in the U.S., and we service our customers in four um, areas, commercial property and casualty, employee benefits, bonding for contractors, of course, and personal insurance, you know, like your homeowners, your boat. Um, my uh, Miami-Dade office is located uh, in Doral. Okay, so let's get right into it. Um, insurance. It's a topic that no one likes to talk about. It's, you know, it's not very <laughs> sexy. Uh but it's tremendously important. Um, and it's the things that people don't know that usually get them into trouble. So we have a few topics we want to cover. Um, so let's start with the first one, the certificate of insurance. So Magda, why don't you tell us what that is and what people need to watch out for? Sure, that's right. And um, so the certificate of insurance, the famous COI, you know, the one thing that uh, all contractors need to remember is that the certificate of insurance is a product of an agency. It's not from the insurance company. So, you know, all of your larger GCs and uh, municipalities or any contractor, any sub who's going to subcontract any work, they are collecting the certificate. But in an event of a claim, the you know everybody's not going to be looking for coverage in the certificate of insurance but in your actual policies so you know different agencies have different um you know protocols for how uh in detail they are and what what you know what language they can include in the certificate but just because the certificate says you're added as an additional insured for a project doesn't necessarily mean that you are you must you must confirm that by requesting the actual endorsements. So Marcus, what do you all do? I mean, you all hire subs, um, you know, rent equipment and stuff like that. What, what is it? What is the process that uh, Doug Ord uh, employs to make sure that the certificates are valid? Yeah, so this is generally, I mean, for all of our clients, right, they're going to ask for our certificate of insurance. And we, of course, then turn around to Magna and Brown and Brown, and, and they produce that for us because they're our agent. Um, but as far as our vendors and our subs that work for us, we require this certificate of insurance as well. Um, we try to make sure that they have the same minimum coverage that we do. Uh, so we quickly go through their GL workman's comp, and then we save that to their vendor file. And generally that's something that year end that gets audited anyway. So anyone that's a subcontractor or a vendor, 
we should have that certificate of insurance on file to cover ourselves as well. So you're actually checking the certificate against the policy. Uh, really what we do is we just look at the certificate, the declaration page, the first page, um, and just generally look for limits. We don't actually request the policies behind them. So Magda, what is, what is the best, um, uh, course of action that someone should take best practices that you would find? Like if someone wanted to be like extra, extra careful on everything, um, what should they be doing when they get a certificate of insurance? Well, when they get a certificate of insurance, you know, they, the best thing they can do is send it to their agent to, to review. And um, even though Marcus just said, you know, that they don't really, they mostly look at the limit um, for most of their subcontractors. Now we actually have gone through the process of, you know, um, checking basically at least their form, their policies for all of their current subs. And, you know, for example, a workers' comp, right? Workers' comp coverage, um, which is, you know, mandated by the state, you can actually quickly check on the proof of coverage website whether the policy is in place or not. Right. So you can look at the certificate and then verify that online, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we have had some clients have issues with is fake certificates of insurance. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so what's the best way to mitigate getting a fake certificate? Well, some of it you can prevent. Some of it, unfortunately, you cannot, right? Um, what happens is, you know, with workers' comp, at least, that you can always verify that on the, you know, on the state website and see if the coverage is in place or not. Because we certainly have seen that in a past where, you know, a certificate is provided, but then, you know, the the insured, right, that sub can just cancel the policy and not let you not let you know. So requesting one of the endorsements, and that could be part of your contracts, to request a 30-day cancellation clause to be added to um, to the to their policy. So in an event that they do cancel the policy, then you'll be notified. So it's it's kind of like you know if if the if they have um, if, if let's say the sub just gets, you know, an insurance just to provide the certificate for when you're requiring it, but then not actually carrying it for rest of the year, you know, you can kind of prevent that. As far as um, making sure that the, you know, the, the, um, the coverage is not actually fake or, you know, verifying if it is fake, every certificate has to have, you know, the insurance company that is um, providing coverage for each line of coverage and the number of the policy. So if you have, uh, you know, an inkling that, you know what, maybe this certificate is not, you know, 100% true, or maybe you just, you know, um, you just want to verify every now and then, you can just simply call the insurance company and ask them, hey, I'm just trying to verify if this certificate, you know, provides the right coverage or, you know, the policy is in place and you can provide them the, um, the policy number and they'll tell you whether the policy is in place or not. As simple as making a phone call. That's a, that's a great piece of advice. The other thing that we have suggested to our clients is never accept a certificate provided by the um, subcontractor or supplier, whoever is handing you the certificate demand that it come from directly from the agent that's generating it so that the agent 
is the one that's verifying that the policy exists because you could just go online and make your own and print your own <laughs> certificate, right? So if, if someone asked me for a certificate, I could make one up and I could hand it to you and it could be completely fake. But if it comes from an agent, now you at least have the likelihood that the agent has done his or her job to make sure that the certificate's real. Is that? Yes, that, that's a great practice, certainly. Yeah, and I think even in, in Alex, in our situation as well, I lean heavily on our agent, which is, is Magda and Brown and Brown, just to review those those certificates. And we see it a lot as well um, with our bigger contracts where they want to see that email coming right from Brown and Brown just to do exactly what you said, just to verify. You know, I, I would I would add that, you know, if if all you're doing with your insurance agent is talking to them once a year at renewal time, you are not getting anywhere near the value of that relationship that you should. Would you agree with that, Magda? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Marcus and I talk probably on a weekly basis. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, especially regarding the contracts, you know, I mean, contractors, you know, that that's what they do, right? You, you bid on work and you have to make sure that your policies properly fund your contracts. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in trouble. Which leads us perfectly into the next topic, which is additional insured. Every contract requires mm -hmm. additional insured endorsements. So, Magda, what is that? And tell us about this. 1185, right? This this right. Uh, 1185 <laughs> edition that, um, you know, we see in contracts today. Um, what Absolutely. is it and how does it work? Sure. So additional insured status, right, essentially provides the party that's being the additional insured access to the downstream party's insurance policy and essentially uh, provides defense for the additional insured. So if, let's say, Douglas Orr, is performing work for you know uh, uh, ABC general contractor. The general contractor will want to be added as additional insured, <clears throat> and that means Douglas's or policy, their general liability policy, would defend this ABC contractor in event of a claim for that particular job site. It's now, like it's like they have two policies, their own. And Correct. Douglas Orr's. And if they're the GC, then it's everybody's, right? It's the plumbers, right. it's the electricians, it's the roofers, right? And think of it as the upstream party and the downstream party, right? So the upstream party is going to, of course, be, you know, your your owner, the GC, um, you know, municipality you're doing work for. And everybody who's the lower uh, level of subcontracting is going to be the downstream party. And unfortunately right now, it, or the way it works, you know, in, in, uh, in contracting is that the liability is being pushed down, you know, downstream essentially, right? And so that's what the additional insured endorsement does, you know? Um, and the two other endorsements that go with it, and I think we'll touch on it a little bit later, is the primary not contributory and waiver of subrogation. They kind of all go together. But let's talk about this famous uh, 1185. So additional insured, there is right now about 500 different versions of this endorsement, right? Um, the 1185, that essentially what that means is that was the addition of this endorsement. That was November of 1985. <laughs> 
And back then, it was only one endorsement that provided the additional insured status for ongoing operations and for completed operations. And it was just very, very broad. They had like no limitations. Which is, which is why everyone wants it. Exactly. However, this endorsement has not been in circulation since 2003. So it's almost 20 years, <laughs> you know, and it's but it's still because that's, you know, the golden standard and everybody, you know, wants it. Um, no insurance company is going to issue that endorsement right now. They just they have no filings for it with the state. So first of all, now they're broken out into two separate endorsements, right? You have one for ongoing operations and the other one for completed operations. Interesting. Uh, Marcus, how do you guys deal with additional insured? I guess it's a necessary evil, right? There's no way to get around it. Yeah. From the contractor side, I mean, um, unfortunately a lot of this stuff, um, we can push back on, but generally we don't get around it. Uh, so I would say almost every major contract has additional insured, including the owners and the, and the GC themselves. Mm-hmm. So Magda, what are we supposed to do? I'm, I, I need to give additional insured, sure. uh, endorsements. Uh, it's pretty routine. My carrier will just give a, a, a certificate, uh, an endorsement, but it just won't be the 1185. Right. It will never be the 1185. There are multiple um, you know, versions. The latest version is the April of 2013. Uh, so you'll see the 0413 uh, edition of the 2010 endorsement for ongoing operations and 2037 for completed operations. Um, however, that particular version and actually carriers recently have been getting much more strict about the language that they're willing to offer in those endorsements because it's all about how broad or how strict the, the language is in that endorsement, right? Right. So I, I guess the, the, the yeah. two things we have to be careful of is if I am someone like Doug Orr and I sign a contract, I need to make sure that the contract that I'm signing that has these requirements that I can comply with them, right? So I should be sending them to my agent, right? Absolutely. And Marcus and I have been going back and forth on multiple contracts, you know, like this. And again, I'm only I'm only advising, of course, on the insurance side, and I'll I'll leave the the legal part to you, Alex. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, yes, so before you sign any contract, you know, you really should first ask your agent, hey, do our policies properly fund this? Are we in compliance? And if we're not, before you sign the contract, you have some negotiating power, right? Right. And it's pretty straightforward. You just say, look, I went to my carrier. I can't give you what you're asking for, but I can give you this other thing, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do that. We we do that quite often, Meg. I, I generally, we get these contracts. I'll send the snippet or I'll send that uh, exhibit right to Magda. And then uh, what she does is a huge asset for, for us as a subcontractor is she'll lay it out in bullet points. Like this is what, this is why we can't offer it. And this is what we can offer in place. And generally we'll just take that and go right back to the general contractor with it. And uh, at all times we come to an agreement, right? Sometimes we have to, um, do what they say, but other times we're able to push back and, and actually uh, get some of those things excluded. I guess the other side of this as well is if you, if I'm putting it in my contract, whether I'm a, an owner to a GC, a GC to a sub, a sub to a sub sub, 
And I put in these really stringent requirements, like, for example, I need an 1185 uh, edition of the additional insured endorsement. And they sign it, in the, and but I never follow up. I never check to make sure that they're actually giving me what I want. If I have a claim, the fact that the contract says that they needed to give it to me may mean they're in breach of the contract, but it doesn't create coverage. The coverage never existed, right? Correct. Yes. So you've so got to be very careful. That's what I mean by, you know, making sure that your policy properly fund the contract, right? Because you sign the contract and, you know, you may you essentially might find yourself in a situation where there was a claim, you your policies will not provide coverage for the claim, and you're in breach of contract with your client. Right. Uh, pretty bad place <laughs> to find yourself in. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the next thing, which is self-retention on umbrellas. So yes. what what is this, Magda? Yes. So this is, it's a very, you know, misunderstood part because, um, you know, so there is really excess policies and umbrella. They're, they're kind of used, the terms are used interchangeably, right? But really there is a small difference. Um, excess liability, it just provides extension of your limits right, from your underlying policies, your general liability, your auto, and your uh, employer's liability, which is the second part of workers' comp. Umbrella policy is also an excess. However, they might have an extra coverage, what we would call like a coverage B, um, that would extend and essentially drop down on a first dollar basis, right? So um, only in that situation in that circumstances the self-retention which is essentially a deductible uh, would apply so when the umbrella just acts as an excess liability right just extending your limits the self-retention never actually would apply it only applies if if the umbrella dropped down you know to to pay first dollar instead of your general liability if let's say your general liability excluded some coverage but this extra extra coverage on your umbrella provided you know this um, then that's when the deductible would apply how often do you see folks getting umbrellas versus excess i mean is one more popular than the other is it just what you can sure. get well excess is certainly less expensive and so most of the time people get, you know, the different companies will get access. But if you are with an admitted carrier, a lot of admitted carriers, you know, who uh, specialize in construction, they might provide the umbrella coverage. And, you know, what I have found is, <laughs> especially with municipalities, right, they will not allow self-retention on an umbrella. They would literally make a contractor get lesser coverage, right? Get less broad policy, the excess liability instead of the umbrella, just so they don't show the self-retention, even though that self-retention would not actually apply. And and is it is isn't this self-retention on an umbrella relatively small? Yes, it's usually small. It's usually the standard is ten thousand dollars. Okay. But still the municipalities don't like it. They just, they will not allow it. And no matter how many times I personally try to explain it and my colleagues try to explain it to risk, um, risk managers, it's just, they just don't accept it. However, 
if you know you work for you, you perform work for municipalities then that's something that needs to be negotiated with your carrier and by your agent you know at renewal time right so c- certain carriers will actually offer umbrella and remove the self-retention altogether so you have the best of two worlds because now you have the broader coverage and no self-retention but you have to address that at renewal time because you know midterm no carrier is going to change that right marcus what do you what do you all do for your excess yeah so we have an umbrella policy um mm-hmm. uh you know and and obviously this gets into a lot of technical stuff and this is where we lean on to magda quite often but at renewal time uh you know this is the discussions that come up and we have an umbrella policy for our company in particular and uh, it's, you know, this is probably a good time to talk about uh, wrap policies, OSIPs and, and CSIPs on these bigger projects. You know, we see them, I'm guessing, Marcus, you do too, on all of these big jobs and not even that big anymore, you know, $10, 15000000 million. Uh, and especially if it's a condo down here in South Florida and the owner wants an OSIP or a CSIP, um, how do you deal with, with that, you know, at just the easy uh, low-hanging fruit to complain about is uh, deductibles, right? So you may have a $5,000 deductible on your policy and find out that this OSIP has a $50,000 deductible. Um, how do you all deal with it? Yeah, these Meg and I have great conversations about OSIPs and CSIPs, and you're right, almost all major contracts now um, involve an OSIP or a CSIP or a wrap-up program, right? And the nice thing is, um, I mean, there are some, I guess the one benefit for the the subcontractor is is that if there's ever a claim it's all under one policy so it's not going back to all different policies as far as as far as that's concerned um and also it's not included in your your annual audits because they're actually taking the the liability through that policy Um, the problem is though is that a lot of times our policies have a three or a five thousand dollar deductible and they're offering you a fifty thousand dollar deductible but yet you're getting lesser insurance or a higher deductible, um, and they're getting credit for that. So I'm I'm giving them credit for a Cadillac, and yet I'm receiving a a Pinto or a, a lowercase type of insurance, right? So that's kind of the pushback at the beginning, um, but generally uh, they just say you know you're you're part of it or you're not, um, but we always usually bring that up at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, as How far about- as the go ahead. I was just curious. I mean, are you able to get some concession on the price or a reduction of the deductible? I mean, I've I've um, in contract negotiations for various clients. That's one of the things we try to address. It's generally not all that successful. We're not that successful in changing that. I mean, the deductible is the deductible. The question is, you know, who's going to eat the first part of it? I'm curious if you've had any success in in tackling that with these contractors. Yeah, I would say we have limited success, right? Um, usually the deductible is what it is, and you obviously hope for no losses, so then it doesn't come into play. Um, but where we've had more success, and this is where, again, you have to lean on your agent, and luckily we have a great one with Magda, um, is some of the calculations that they do to, to figure out your OSIP credit that you have to give back to them. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll, they'll always take the higher number, um, especially in the in in regards to the umbrella credit um, 
and, and Meg, maybe you can explain it better than yeah. me, but I know this is this one we've been pretty successful on and it saved right. us literally thousands of dollars. So, Right. So on, on the OSIP calculation credits, essentially, you know, from your workers' comp and from your general liability policies, you can find the rates right on the policy, right? Now on the umbrella, the umbrella policy or the excess policy is, you, it's usually just a flat premium, right? And it goes over three different types of policies. It goes over your general liability, your auto, and your workers' comp. However, for an OSIP work, they're only requiring the general liability coverage. So your umbrella essentially is developed based on the underlying policies. So if you're giving credit, if you're backing into the rate for, for your umbrella based on just, you know, the entire exposure, you're, you're giving too much of a credit, especially if you have a, a heavy vehicle fleet. Right. Because, for example, uh, and this is a, a conversation you may have with your umbrella underwriter to figure out the exact percentage. But let's say if your general liability, it provides a weight, right, of let's say 40 percent of the uh, umbrella calculation and the auto, because you have a large fleet, um, actually counts for about 60 percent of the development of the rate for the umbrella, then you can discount for the credit calculation. You can only take the 40% of the, of the premium of the umbrella and you know back into the rate based on that. Does that make sense? It does. That sounds like a great way to reduce the OSIP credit you have to give back. Um, exactly. Which I, because I guess if you just say, well, my, the credit is X, you know, I guess let's back up for a minute. So for those that don't understand how it works, when you bid the job, right, Marcus, you bid it with your all in number as if you were providing the insurance and provide a credit at the end, correct? Yeah, exactly. So we'll go with our all in number and we know it's an OSIP or CSIP job. And then after the contract is is signed, then we'll say, okay, these are the estimated payroll hours. And we obviously know the contract price. And then they'll ask for your GL rate, workman's comp rate, depending on what, what's included in the coverage. And then that rate is a mathematical formula times the estimated payroll hours. And, and then it shoots out a credit. So that credit could be, you know, 20, 30, 50, $100,000. And at the end of the project or during the project, they'll give you a change order deduct for that credit amount, and they're going to take that from you. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to calculate that credit correctly. And it, it literally um, can result in thousands of dollars of over credit that you would give just based on this one uh, umbrella example here that Meg brought up. Right. You would be giving, you'd be giving more of a credit back, giving back more money than you had to because you're calculating your insurance incorrectly on the credit an apples to orange versus an apples to apples right magda yeah. right yes and because remember the general liability and workers comp those policies are auditable right so if you do something on on an OSIP job at audit time that will be subtracted from the calculation of your you know and your premium for general liability and workers comp for umbrella policies they're typically not auditable so whatever premium you pay for it 
that's it. It does. It doesn't matter if you did work under an OSIP, you know, during the year. You're so you're given a credit under the um, for the umbrella, the excess coverage, but you're never actually getting that credit back from your insurance company because it's not auditable. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about one last issue, which is um, something that folks find incredibly confusing, and that is primary non-contributory language. So Magda, what is it generally and what do I have to watch out for when I'm signing a contract? Yes, so primary non-contributory language is essentially what it means is the order in which the policies will pay, right? So this goes hand in hand with the additional insured. So um, on the on the general liability, you know, that's usually not that confusing. That endorsement is is frequently given pretty easily by the insurance companies, uh, you know, with few exceptions. Uh, but where this really kind of comes into play or becomes more of a problem is with the access policies. And we refer to this issue as vertical versus horizontal exhaustion of limits. So essentially, in an event of a claim, Per your contract, right? If you're a subcontractor, if you add a general contractor's additional insured um, on the primary and contributory basis, what you're agreeing to is that your policy as the subcontractor, your general policy will pay first. And if you if your general liability runs out of limits, then your excess policy will step in next and cover rest of the claim without the contribution of the general contractor of the upstream party's policy, right? But now, if your excess policy does not have the primary non-contributory language, you know, either built into the policy or having the endorsement, then basically what you agree to in a contract is not what's going to happen. So if you don't have that endorsement, what's going to happen is you, your general liability policy will, will pay first. And if you have, let's say, a $3 million claim, you're going to run out after $1 million of your general liability. And now what's going to happen is your excess policy will has a clause of other insurance. So they say, we'll pay only you know after all available policies are exhausted what that leaves is your general contractor your client's general liability so your access is not going to step in until your general contractor your client's policy will pay only right this then is they will step in this is the, the going back to the, the what we talked about before which is the fact that you have a contract that says certain mm-hmm. things doesn't mean that your policies of insurance automatically say the same thing. Someone has to go through the process and verify that what's in your contracts is in fact matched up and mirrored by your policies. Someone like you, Magda, right? That's that's why Absolutely. you and Marcus are talking every week. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, you know, the, the term of follow form that your access or your umbrella policy is follow form, you know, it's for the most part, it means that the terms of the umbrella will follow the same terms as your general liability, your underlying policy. But there are a few exceptions, like the other insurance clause, which specifically apply to the order in which the policies will pay. So 
without the, you know, it's sometimes it's shortened as the, the PNC, right? The primary not contributory endorsement. If you don't have it on the umbrella, you will be in trouble. And, and the, and the opposite, you know, Oh, we always try to look at things from multiple perspectives, right? So if I'm the GC, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that my subcontractors, general liability and excess policy has the PNC primary non-contributory language in it, because if not, then if there's a claim, it could land on my policy when I've worked so hard to make sure that it never lands on my policy, right? Absolutely. That's exactly it. And it will be in every contract with every, anybody who's requiring you uh, to have an access policy or provide, you know, higher limits, they will absolutely are going to ask you for this coverage. And if if somebody's just telling you, oh, your access is follow form, so it automatically has it, that's not true. All right. Well, if you weren't scared about insurance before this podcast, <laughs> you're definitely more nervous now. You're probably picking up the phone and calling your agent. Um, so Magda, why don't you tell us uh, how folks can contact you if they have more questions about this topic? Yes, absolutely. Um, you can contact me either. The best, best uh, way to is just call my cell phone number. I always have it on me. It's 305-930-9992 um, or my email, which is which my I'll- first name. Yeah, I'll put that, that. I'll put all of that yeah. in the in the show notes. Your your last name has a lot of letters in it. It so. does absolutely, but yeah, cell phone usually is easiest call or text, uh, and we can connect that way. Perfect, Marcus. If folks have questions for you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, you can reach me at uh, my email as well, or the office phone three zero five eight eight seven sixteen eighty seven. But uh, I agree with you, Alex. Like the first call you should make goes right to your agent, and uh, in my case, I got a great one in Magda because there is a lot of complexities to this insurance and it does matter uh, what you're bound to and, uh, and, the, and contractually and legally. So appreciate the time. No, no yes, problem. Thank you so much, Alex. Anytime. I, I appreciate you educating our, our audience um, and everyone out there. If you have questions, reach out to Marcus and Magda. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thank you.